This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Stegosaurus as well as a lot of dinosaur news. First in the news, we have a story out of the journal Acta Paleontologica Polonica from Spain titled Theropod Dinosaurs from the Upper Cretaceous of the South Pyrenees Basin of Spain. It was published by Angelica Torresis, Philip J. Curry, who we've spoken with on this show before, and some others. So the scientists looked at eight locations around the Iberian Peninsula, in this case the South Pyrenees Basin in northern Spain. Before the study, they had already known of two dinosaur species in the area, but researchers suspected that there were more and decided to see what they could conclude from looking at the fossilized teeth that they found in the area. So they looked at 142 different theropod teeth from the region, and 120 of them were actually from the same site called Lano. They compared all of them, and they tried to find distinct groups within the teeth. They did this by comparing the teeth to well-classified specimens in the Royal Tyrell Museum of Paleontology in Canada and the Museum National de Histoire Naturelle in Paris, France, and I probably butchered that. They looked at the height, length, width, and the dentical density of the teeth. We've talked all about denticles in the past. They're basically the individual serrations on teeth, and different species have very unique characteristics. We've talked all about it before, so I'm not going to go deep into it again, but this article does. They also noted qualitative dentical shape, like the Trudon's hooked shape or the Dromaeosaurines squared-off or chisel-like denticles, And apparently when you look at these under a microscope, it can really tell you a lot about what the species is, as they all evolve denticles in different ways. So they classified all these teeth into several groups, and then they determined that two of the groups may have actually been from the same species, and they think that either a juvenile and adult made the different teeth, or it could have just been different teeth in the same row of teeth in a single species. So I always think of T-Rex when I think of teeth, because... The skull with the row of teeth is very iconic, and in the front they have those huge teeth, you know, the big like eight inch long serrated steak knife type teeth. But as you go farther towards the back, they get a lot smaller because the mouth doesn't open as far, so you can't get as big of a tooth back there. So if you just found random scatterings of a T-Rex tooth, you might think that they were different species or one was a juvenile, but it could just be, you know, a smaller tooth. 
After looking at all of these different teeth and their different characteristics and comparing them to known specimens, they concluded that there were probably six theropods that are previously unknown in the area. There's the relatively large theropod that they believe is probably a tyrannosaurid, and that's the one that had the two groups of teeth. There's an indeterminate species from the Dromaeosauridae group, an indeterminate species from the Celurosauria group, a Paronychodon, a Ricardoestesia, and a Pyroraptor olympius. If you're counting the six different theropods, but they couldn't quite tell because, you know, they couldn't identify them specifically. They're only looking at teeth. And the authors like to highlight that although teeth are not the most informative bones in the paleontological record, when nothing else is available, they can actually add a lot of understanding to the diversity in an area. And in this case, there wasn't anything else fossilized around, so all they had to work with was teeth. So previously, people had looked at the two known species in the area because there was better fossilized evidence. But then that left a huge gap in our knowledge where we thought, well, maybe everything else had already died out. No one had really looked at it. So this was a very important study. And it also helps because it highlights that theropods were still very diverse in that area at the end of the Cretaceous. And that adds more evidence to a sudden mass extinction event rather than the slow decline that's been proposed a few places recently. Dinosaurs in Gondwana may have died in fields of flowers that were ancestors of daisies, according to a new study published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Flowers may have been around a lot longer than scientists had previously thought. The earliest plant from the Asteraceae family, where daisies are classified, was originally thought to be 47.5 million years ago, but it's now thought to be about 67.5 million years ago, which puts it in the late Cretaceous. Scientists studied pollen grains from 76 to 66 million-year-old sediments from the Antarctic Peninsula, and Asteraceae probably helped insect and bird pollinators evolve, like bees, hummingbirds, and wasps. Biologist Pernille Dino Trulsen from the University of Denmark found fossilized footprints of two carnivores, probably Megalosaurus, which is about the same size as Velociraptor, in Germany. One is big and one is small, and the footprints show that they were practically strolling in wet sand, and sometimes the small one picks up its pace to keep up with the big one. The bigger one averages 3.9 miles per hour or 6.3 kilometers per hour and the smaller one averages 6 miles an hour or 9.7 kilometers per hour, which is slow for a dinosaur that can go nearly 25 miles per hour or 40 kilometers per hour. The footprints were excavated in 2009 to 2011 in the Buchberg Formation in Germany, and Trollsen is the first biologist to look at the footprints found there. The smaller one crosses its legs at times, which may show that it either lost balance or found food or maybe wanted to be closer to the bigger one, which having these two tracks together may show socialization, possibly between a parent and a juvenile, but it's not entirely clear that these two tracks were made at the same time. It's possible they were years apart, but I like the sound of having a parent and the juvenile and the juveniles, you know, running to keep up with its parent and kind of wandering off. Or maybe it was like a little sibling following around and bothering the big sibling and nipping at it or something, <laughs> trying to figure out, like, where are you going? What's going on over here? 
In southern China, police found a dinosaur skeleton of Cetacosaurus and 213 dinosaur eggs tucked away under stairs in someone's home. They were able to find the bones and eggs after some fossils in a construction site in the Guangdong province went missing. The ones that were found in late June, early July, and we talked about this in a previous episode. But there's no word yet on if anyone will be charged by the police for the find. And lastly, researchers have discovered that Chinese alligators can quote unquote sing by vibrating air in their vocal tract. They trap air with their tongue, and the air expands a pouch in their throat, which they can vibrate to make sounds. And it's the same way that birds sing. And this may mean that dinosaurs could sing because alligators slash crocodilians. Birds and dinosaurs are all archosaurs and share an ancestor. Birds and humans can sing and speak, in the case for humans, because of vocal tract resonance or formant frequencies, where air is trapped in the vocal tract. And one zoologist, Stephen Reber, said, "Quote: Crocodilians are among the most vocal non-avian reptiles. Unquote. Especially around mating season, the frequency of the sounds is a result of their size." The research is published in the Journal of Experimental Biology. And further study of crocodiles and birds may shed more light on how dinosaurs communicated. So maybe the little dinosaurs are running around chirping. Could be. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated—they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process—not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods,、mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time, and it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the Saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river, and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh no! And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh no, but also, yay! <laughs> Good for us as scientists、mm -hmm. and dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July sixth to July twentieth, or from July twenty second to August fifth. Head over to cncc.edu/dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May thirty first. And again, that is cncc.edu/dinodig. D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than two hundred and seventy five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com/slash/investing-in-America. And now for our dinosaur of the day, Stegosaurus, which is not to be confused with Stegosaurus, which is a pachycephalosaurid and has a dome head. The name Stegosaurus means roof lizard or covered lizard, and it's because of its bony plates. It lived in the late Jurassic in western North America, though one has been found in Portugal in 2006. At least three species have been found in the Morrison Formation, based on 80 individuals. 
Stegosaurus was the first dinosaur named in the family Stegosauridae, so it's the type genus. And in the family Stegosauridae, Stegosaurus is the largest. Stegosaurus was found during the Bone Wars. Charles Marsh named Stegosaurus armatus in 1877, the type species, based on fossils found near Morrison, Colorado. At first, Marsh thought it was an aquatic animal, similar to a turtle, and the name roofed lizard comes from Marsh thinking the plates were flat on Stegosaurus's back like shingles on a roof. Lots of Stegosaurus fossils were found, and Marsh wrote many papers, and like with many dinosaurs, at first multiple species were named, but now there's only a few valid ones. Stegosaurus armatus, the armored roof lizard, was named based on two partial skeletons, two partial skulls, and 30 fragments of individuals. It had four tail spikes, Marsh originally thought it had eight, and somewhat small plates. It was about 30 feet or 9 meters long. It's the longest Stegosaurus species, and it's been found in Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah in the Morrison Formation. Stegosaurus ungulatus, which means hoofed roof lizard, is another species. Marsh named it in 1879 based on fossils found in Wyoming, and it's possible these fossils are actually Stegosaurus armatus, but the fossils found in 2006 in Portugal are considered to be Stegosaurus ungulatus. In 1887, Marsh named Stegosaurus sulcatus, which means furrowed roof lizard, from a partial skeleton. Many have thought that it's the same as Stegosaurus armatus, but recent studies show it might be its own species. The type specimen for the species had a spike originally thought to be part of the tail, but some scientists now think it was part of the shoulder. In 1887, Marsh named Stegosaurus stenops, which means narrow-faced roof lizard, and the holotub was found by Marshall Felch in Colorado in 1886. The species is known from at least one complete skeleton, so it's the best known. It had four tail spikes and broad plates, and 50 partial skeletons of adults and juveniles, a complete skull, and four partial skulls have been found. It was only 23 feet or 7 meters long, and it's been found in Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah. In 2008, Susanna Maidman and a team pushed to synonymize Stegosaurus stenops and Stegosaurus ungulatus with Stegosaurus armatus, as well as change Hesperosaurus and Wuhosaurus into Stegosaurus and renaming them Stegosaurus moose and Stegosaurus homheni. They also said Stegosaurus longispinus was dubious. According to them, there'd be three Stegosaurus species, armatus, homheni, and moose with Stegosaurus ranging from late Jurassic in North America and Europe to early Cretaceous in Asia. But most researchers don't agree with this. Some nomina dubia or dubious names and junior synonyms include Stegosaurus affinis. Marsh described it in 1881, but it was based on only a pubis. Stegosaurus laticeps. Marsh described this one in 1881 based on jawbone fragments. Stegosaurus duplex, the name means two-plexus roof lizard, and Marsh named it in 1887 based on the large area near its tail that Marsh called the, quote, posterior brain case, but that's probably just Stegosaurus armatus. So it seems researchers have come to an agreement on Stegosaurus longispinus, at least it's a former Stegosaurus, Charles Gilmore named it, and it's now the type species of the genus Natronosaurus. Other former Stegosauruses include Stegosaurus madagascarensis, which was described in 1926 based on teeth found in Madagascar, but is now considered to be something else like a hadrosaur or ankylosaur. Stegosaurus marshi, described in 1901 and renamed Hoplitosaurus in 1902, and Stegosaurus priscus, described in 1911 and now the type species of Loricatosaurus. Kenneth Carpenter and Peter Galton published a couple papers in 2010 that Stegosaurus stenops may be a better type species than Stegosaurus armatus, since it's the best known, the most well-studied, and has the most fossils as well as a near-complete skeleton. 
Carpenter said there's debate on the number of valid species, and if you're a, quote, taxonomic clumper, you may only see one stegosaurus species as valid since there can be so much variation in one species, like how all dogs belong to Canis lupus familiaris. Yeah, I wonder what Jack Horner would think about that. He might try to lump them together. Maybe. <laughs> Most stegosaurus fossils were found in the Morrison Formation. The Morrison Formation was semi-arid with wet and dry seasons and flat floodplains. And vegetation included conifers, ferns, green algae, fungi, mosses, horsetails, cichids, and ginkgos. And tree stars. <laughs> Other dinosaurs included Allosaurus, Torvosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Apatosaurus, Diplodocus, Camarasaurus, Camptosaurus, and Dryosaurus. And Stegosaurus was often found near Allosaurus, Apatosaurus, Camarasaurus, and Diplodocus. Other animals that lived in the area included snails, frogs, rayfin, fish, turtles, salamanders, pterosaurus, and early mammals. Matthew Mossbrooker found tracks that showed stegosaurs may have lived in herds among a number of different aged stegosauruses. One set of tracks had four to five baby stegosauruses moving together, and another had a juvenile track with an adult track over it. Stegosaurus had pebbly throat armor. There were lumps under its neck to help shield it from predators, including allosaurus and ceratosaurus. Marsh at first thought Stegosaurus was bipedal because its forelimbs were so short, but then in 1891 he decided it was too heavy to walk on just two legs. Some scientists, however, think Stegosaurus may have been able to rear up on its hind legs using its tail to support its weight so it could eat higher up plants. Because its forelimbs were shorter than its hind limbs, it had an interesting posture. It probably kept its head low to the ground, so it probably ate low-lying plants and had a stiff tail high in the air. Stegosaurus's center of mass was probably near its hind legs, and that would allow it to spin more quickly and get its tail in between it and a predator when it needed to defend itself. Which reminds me of a uh, barrel racing horse. <laughs> I don't know how many people have actually seen this thing, but there's this event where you run a horse around barrels and the way you breed them is to have huge hind legs and all the weight near the back because that helps them turn around corners more quickly. However, Stegosaurus probably couldn't walk that fast, otherwise its back legs would overtake its front legs, so it probably had max speeds of 4 to 5 miles per hour or 6 to 7 kilometers per hour. Its hind feet had three toes and its forefeet had five toes, though the inner two toes had a blunt hoof. Stegosaurus and its relatives were herbivores, but it had different teeth and jaws compared to other herbivores, so it may have had a unique feeding strategy. Stegosaurus had peg-shaped teeth, not grinding teeth, and its jaws could only do up-and-down movements, and there's also no evidence that they swallowed gastroliths, so it's not clear exactly how they ate their food. It didn't have front teeth, instead it had a horny beak, which may have been easier to eat low-growing vegetation. Its teeth were small, flat, and triangular, and Stegosaurus possibly had cheeks to keep food in its mouth. In 2010, scientists did a detailed computer analysis of how Stegosaurus ate using two 3D models of Stegosaurus teeth. They also calculated the bite force and found that it was less than half the force of a Labrador retriever, so although it could bite through small young branches, it could not bite through anything over 12 millimeters in diameter. About half an inch. Fossilized stegosaurus teeth show more wear on the sides that were sharpest, so stegosaurus probably bit on a plant pulled back its head, and then the teeth cut through the vegetation. It probably ate mosses, ferns, horsetails, cichids, and conifers, and it wouldn't have grazed on grasses. There was no grass around until the late Cretaceous after it went extinct. Stegosaurus was up to 30 feet or 9 meters long, about the size of a bus. In 1994, a subadult stegosaurus was found in Wyoming. It was 15 feet or 4.6 meters long, 7 feet or 2 meters high, and weighed 2.6 tons or 2.3 metric tons, and you can see it on display in the University of Wyoming Geological Museum. 
A 90% specimen was found in 2003 in Wyoming by Bob Simon, president of the Dinosaur Excavation and Preservation Corporation, Virginia Dinosaur Company, and Dinosaur Safaris. It weighed more than 5 short tons, 4.5 metric tons. Stegosaurus weighed more than 5 short tons, or 4.5 metric tons, but its brain was about 80 grams, which made people think for a long time that dinosaurs were not that smart, since Stegosaurus was one of the earliest ones found, until more recently, around Jurassic Park, when that came out in the early 90s. Yeah, and then they showed some other dinosaurs that were smarter, even though they still showed T-Rex not being able to see movement, which always makes me laugh. Stegosaurus had a long, narrow skull, which was small compared to the rest of its body. Its brain case was no larger than a dog's, though its body was obviously much bigger. Its brain was thought to be the size of a walnut, but according to Kenneth Carpenter, director of the USU Eastern Prehistoric Museum in Utah, quote, its brain had the size and shape of a bent hot dog. Stegosaurus had a low EQ, or brain-to-body mass ratio, so it wasn't the smartest dinosaur. Charles Marsh got a case of a brain cavity, also called an endocast, in the 1880s and showed that it was the smallest proportionally of all dinosaurs, at least the ones known at the time. Marsh described a, quote, large canal on the hip region of the spinal cord, which could fit something more than 20 times bigger than the Stegosaurus's brain. This led to the idea that Stegosaurus had a second brain in its tail to help control its body, especially when threatened. But this area has also been found in sauropods and actually might have been the location of a glycogen body, which is something found in living birds and scientists don't know exactly what it's for, but probably has something to do with energy storage. Stegosaurus is known from its plates and spikes on the tail, which is probably used for defense. And Sabrina and I actually have a replica model of one of those plates, which is super awesome. Mm-hmm. Gives you an idea of just how massive this dinosaur was. Yeah, because the plate itself is about the size of my chest, <laughs> you know, like my whole torso. So, And that's just a tiny thing sticking on the top of it. So. Stegosaurus had kite-shaped plates on its rounded back and two pairs of long spikes at the end of its tail. The plates may have been used for defense, display, and or thermal regulation. Had 17 flat plates, or dermal plates, that were osteoderms, or bony cord scales, similar to osteoderms found in modern crocodiles and lizards. The plates came from the skin, not the skeleton, and the largest plates were 2 feet or 16 centimeters wide and by 2 feet or 60 centimeters tall. There's been a lot of arguments over how the plates were arranged on Stegosaurus. Marsh at first thought the plates lay flat, but in 1891 said Stegosaurus had a single row of plates. Another idea is there were pairs of plates in a row along the back, which is seen most often in images, especially early ones before the 1970s, and you can see the Stegosaurus in the 1933 film King Kong this way, but there's no two identical size and shape plates that have been found for the same Stegosaurus. So another idea was that there are two rows of alternating plates. And many people had accepted this idea by the early 1960s, though some argue we don't see this in other reptiles, so how could it have evolved that way? Robert Bakker speculated the plates were somewhat mobile, and Stegosaurus could flip them from side to side to deter a predator from attacking. In 1914, Charles Gilmore said the spikes on the tail were for display only, but Robert Bakker said that the tail was probably pretty flexible. There was no ossified tendons, so they probably used it as a weapon. And he said that they looked like a monkey tail with no walking joints, so they could fatally stab. The plates seemed to overlap with the tail vertebrae, so that may have limited its movement somewhat. But again, there's been a lot of debate over the purpose of the plates. It was thought to be armor at first, but they're too fragile and they leave the sides of Stegosaurus unprotected. However, they may have made Stegosaurus look bigger and more menacing to predators, or impressive to female Stegosaurus, though both males and females had plates. 
They may also have helped control body temperature. They could have also been used for warding. Blood would brush to the plates, making them blush, a red warning, which could also be used to attract mates. Stegosaurus plates were not made of solid osteoderms, but had lattice-like structures and blood vessels. A 2005 analysis in paleobiology found the, quote, microstructure of the plates suggests they weren't used to radiate heat. A 2010 study published in the Swiss Journal of Geosciences found the plates may have passively helped control body temperature because the plates were so large with so many blood vessels, like how a toucan's bill naturally radiates body heat but it might not have been the main purpose. The size and shape of stegosaurus plates help identify whether they were male or female. In general, it's really hard to tell whether dinosaurs are male or female. Reproductive organs and soft tissues are rarely found, so scientists guess based on modern animals. In 2015, and we covered this in a previous episode of the podcast, a study in PLOS One said that stegosaurus fossils, stegosaurus moose specifically, found in Montana with two types of plates, one was large and round versus the other was tall and spiky, were not different species, but were actually just different genders. Yeah, and then they theorized that the larger round ones were probably the males, since males are usually trying to attract the mate, and they usually do that by having bigger, more ornate displays. The stegosaurus fossils were found together, which shows they probably coexisted, and the plates had similar growth rings, so the dinosaurs were around the same age, and that proves that the plates didn't just change with age. Early on, scientists thought the tail spikes were upright, but now they think they stuck out to the sides. McWinnie and his team published a study of tail spikes that showed that 9.8% of stegosauruses examined had tail spike injuries, which helps support the idea that they fought with their tails. Also, an Allosaurus has been found with a punctured tail wound. That's really interesting. I don't know if I've ever seen a picture of a Stegosaurus with spikes going straight out to the sides, but it does make a lot of sense. Informally, Stegosaurus tail spikes are called thagomizers. After Gary Larson's Far Side cartoon was published in 1982 showing cavemen calling the spikes thagomizers, the line was, quote, Now this end is called the thagomizer, after the late Thag Simmons. In 1977, paleontologists found a nearly complete juvenile stegosaurus at Dinosaur National Monument, the most complete one found so far, with limb bones, shoulder blades, most of the hips, some ribs, and skull fragments, and the cast is on display at the Quarry Exhibit Hall. You can see adult and juvenile stegosaurus stand-ups at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and they look like they're being attacked by an Allosaurus fragilis. You can see stegosaurus ungulates at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or in the Nebraska Stage Museum in Lincoln, Nebraska. You can also see a stegosaurus stand-ups, who's nicknamed Sophie, at the Natural History Museum in London. Stegosaurus has been in the media a lot. Starting in 1884, in an issue of Scientific American, it showed Marsh's first thoughts on Stegosaurus uh, with an image of Stegosaurus with tail spikes on its back, back plates on its tail, and it's in a tripodal pose up on its hind legs and tail. In 1920, journalist W.H. Ballas wrote that Stegosaurus would flap its plates and glide through the air. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. In 1999, BBC's Walking with Dinosaurs gave Stegosaurus some frontal swagger to show the shortness of its forelimbs compared to its hind limbs. As of 1982, Stegosaurus is the state dinosaur of Colorado, and it became the state dinosaur of Colorado after a two-year writing campaign by thousands of fourth graders requesting it. Stegosaurus also appears in Jurassic Park 2 and 3, and it also is one of the main characters in Land Before Time as Spike, 
Spike likes to eat tree stars, as Garrett talked about later. <laughs> Spike has a interesting growth pattern in the movie, though, for anyone who's seen it. And maybe you hadn't noticed before, but after this, I'm sure you will notice. He is a tiny baby when he first hatches out of his eggs, the same size as Ducky, the small hadrosaur. But then he eats a few plants around his nests, and all of a sudden, he is large enough to carry Ducky. <laughs> yeah, it does not take long at all. And Spike, I think they did a pretty good job of showing him as the dumbest one of the group because he's constantly just kind of oafing around. All he wants to do is eat. <laughs> However, although Stegosaurus is pretty famous, there's less than two dozen types in the Stegosaurid family, so it's a kind of a rare type of dinosaur. Stegosaurus was, again, the first named genus in the Stegosauridae family, making it the type genus. Its closest relatives were Wuhosaurus from China and Kentrosaurus from East Africa. Stegosauridae is one of the two families in the infraorder Stegosauria. The other family is Huayangosauridae. And Stegosauridae skulls were shallower compared to Huayangosauridae, and there was a bigger difference between its short forelimbs and long hind limbs, and it had larger plates and tail spikes. Huayangosaurus is the only genus in Huayangosauridae, and it lived 20 million years before Stegosaurus. One lived 190 million years ago and had features of both Stegosaurus and Ankylosaurus. Stegosauria is in the suborder Thyreophora, which are armored dinosaurs that includes Ankylosaurus. Stegosauridae is further divided into two subfamilies, Decentrurinae and Stegosaurinae. Stegosaurinae are the larger ones. The earliest stegosaur is Lexovisaurus from England. Other small, lightly armored dinosaurs related to Stegosaurus' direct ancestor include Emmasaurus from Germany, which is a small quadruped, and Scultilosaurus from Arizona, which was bipedal. A trackway of an early armored dinosaur from 195 million years ago was found in France. Stegosaurids lived in the late Jurassic to early Cretaceous. They were usually large, and the front legs were shorter than their back legs, so they were slow. They could probably shear branches with their teeth, and of course they're known for their plates and tail spikes. And our fun fact of the day comes from a question I had while reading the article about all the teeth. And my question was, why do teeth fossilize so well, especially in an area where there's very little other dinosaur evidence? It makes you wonder, why are there all these teeth that scientists have to look at? The answer turns out to be that teeth are made from dentin, which is harder and denser than regular bone. And they are surrounded by a very hard enamel shell which protects them. In many cases, they fall out and are replaced regularly. We've talked about that with theropods. And finally, they aren't very tasty, so other animals are unlikely to break them down and try to chew on them or anything. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and until next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.